Hello and welcome to the latest podcast from The Lancet. Richard Lane here on Wednesday, December the 22nd. This podcast highlights an important paper published on Wednesday, December the 22nd concerning cancer survival, a result of a major collaboration between the International Cancer Benchmarking Partnership. Let's hear now from the press conference to launch this paper, introduced by The Lancet's editor, Dr Richard Horton. You will also hear from the UK Department of Health Cancer Czar, Professor Sir Mike Richards, and the lead author of the paper, Professor Michelle Coleman, who is based at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Thanks very much indeed, and welcome to an on-the-record press conference this morning, uh, where we have a panel who are going to present you new data based upon a paper uh, that we are publishing this week. Um, we're going to uh, have a sequence of um, reflections on this paper, uh, and uh, I'm going to start, first of all, with uh, uh, Professor Mike Richards, who, uh, as you know, is from the Department of Health, our, our cancer czar, um, and we'll go from Mike to Michelle, back to Mike, and then finally, Sarah. Hmm? Oh, yeah, there's an embargo as well, but you know all about that. So let, let me go straight to Mike. It has been nice for him. Yeah. Uh, th thank you, Richard. Uh, good morning, everybody. And if I cough and splutter a little bit, it, it's because this is my first day back at work after the, the, the flu. Um, but uh, what I want to do is just set the scene by telling you a, a, a bit about the International Cancer Benchmarking Partnership. Then Michelle will go into the details of, of, of this paper. Um, this is a partnership across six countries and in fact 12 jurisdictions within the six countries. So Australia is re represented by New South Wales and Victoria. Canada is represented by Alberta, British Columbia, Manitoba and Ontario. The whole of Denmark, Norway and Sweden. And then for the UK, England, Wales and Northern Ireland. And the, it's a partnership not just of countries, but uh, within those countries, policymakers, epidemiologists, clinicians, uh, behavioural scientists, uh, <coughs> all of whom are working together to answer some key questions which I'll come to. Uh, you will note that the, the countries are all of broadly similar wealth. They've all got <coughs> comprehensive healthcare systems um, and they've all got good cancer registration. Um, and a lot of them have either got cancer plans or are developing cancer plans. Um, certainly every one of them is, is working hard to improve the cancer outcomes. And the important point is they're all willing to work together uh, to answer some key questions. First of all, how does survival compare between the countries for the most recent period uh, for which data are available? Um, secondly, can we explore what the reasons are for any differences in survival? And thirdly, um, what can we learn from each other to improve survival? We've chosen to look at four cancers, uh, breast cancer, colorectal cancer and lung cancer, which are both common cancers and common cancer killers. And we then uh, deliberately also chose ovarian cancer as an example of a less common cancer, but with a rather complex diagnostic care pathway, where the symptoms often don't immediately strike people as being gynaecological. Um, what you'll hear this morning is about the first paper of what we hope and believe is going to be a series of papers. Um, this is looking at the, the, the most up-to-date survival differences. Then uh, after that, we are looking at 
the population, what are the awareness and beliefs about cancer in the different populations, uh, how the primary care systems in the different countries compare, um, what are the root causes of delays in different countries, um, and then looking at, at di detailed differences in treatments, comorbidities, stage, etc. So this is a programme of work that will be going on uh, over the next year or more uh, to answer those, those questions, but we believe that today is an important stepping stone where we publish our first results. But I think I'd then hand over to Michelle, who I must say has done a huge amount of work uh, to get uh, these, these results together. Thank you, Mike. Um, the, the work is not just me, of course. It's actually a rather large team of uh, people working with me and in all of, the, <coughs> all of the 12 jurisdictions that you've mentioned. You've set the scene as to why we're looking at survival in a very much broader context of how to improve the outcomes of cancer. But I think it's also worth uh, taking one step back before I dive into any detail about this study to make the point that cancer is a very important chronic disease and a public health problem. One in three of us can expect to be diagnosed with it during a typical lifetime and one in four of us can expect to die of it. That's a major public health problem by any standards. Clearly incidence, that is the occurrence of new cases of diagnosis, uh, new cases of cancer, excuse me, um, is the key measure for prevention and clearly prevention would be a lot better than attempts at cure. We know what causes perhaps a third, maybe even half of cancers, and if we were able to apply prevention effectively and completely for all of those cancers, we would obviously reduce the burden of incident disease. It's taken us 60 years to get reasonably serious about smoking and smoking-related cancers, and it's not today or tomorrow that prevention will actually reduce the burden of cancer dramatically across the board. It has done so for smoking-related cancers in men. So we turn to the issue of what happens when the millions of people who continue to be diagnosed with cancer every year are diagnosed. They must be offered treatment, and most of them will want to accept it. And then we need to know how well they survive their disease. That's where this study comes in. Because survival in the public health sense, which is what we've looked at here, that is the survival of all persons diagnosed with cancer, that's what's meant by population-based studies in the title of this study. We're looking at all persons diagnosed with cancer, regardless of whether they are too advanced or too ill to be treated with treatment of curative intent at the point of diagnosis. So clearly this is a measure of the overall effectiveness of health services in managing, diagnosing, treating and in some cases curing persons with cancer and that explains the breadth of the partnership to which Mike has already alluded. Survival in that sense drives the creation of cancer plans and it's also being used to evaluate their effectiveness and I've alluded to that in some of the introductory remarks in the paper. In short, survival, population-based survival, is part of the crucial evidence base for policy designed to improve the outcome of patients diagnosed with cancer. Mike has already alluded to the fact that we've looked at breast, colorectal, lung and ovarian cancers. These are four major cancers for which there are survival differences around the world, and in, including between the six cancers, uh, six countries that we have studied. 
and we have looked at 2.4 million adults diagnosed with one or other of these four cancers during the period 1995 <coughs> to 2007. And we have direct estimates of survival for those diagnosed in 95 to 99 and for those diagnosed in 2000 to 2002. And for those diagnosed in 2005 to 2007, which makes this the most up-to-date international comparison of survival available at present, for those patients, clearly it's not been possible yet to follow all of them for the full five years. That should be self-evident. But what we do in these cases is we make a short-term prediction of what survival is likely to be based on the most recent available follow-up evidence. And the best analogy I can give you for that, if you need to explain it, is life expectancy at birth. Short digression. When everybody's familiar with life expectancy at birth, it's based <coughs> on the most recent mortality data, and we say this is how long we can expect a baby born today to live if that baby suffers the same chances of dying at every age up to 80 or 90 that we can record in the most recent year. We have exactly the same approach for cancer survival. We make a short-term prediction saying this is how long we would expect patients to survive on the basis of the most recent follow-up data available for patients diagnosed in the last few years. And that is set out for you, I hope, clearly in figure one in the paper, which <coughs> is either available or will be available very shortly. Um, so we have then examined survival for these cancer patients in six countries over three calendar periods, the late 90s, the early 2000s, and 2005 to 2007. We've looked at survival <coughs> up to one year after diagnosis, up to five years after diagnosis, and what we've called the conditional five-year survival. That is a measure of survival in persons who've already survived to at least the first anniversary of their cancer diagnosis. We're removing them from the picture, obviously not because they're considered unimportant, but on the contrary, it is those patients <coughs> who've, who've survived the first year after diagnosis where the most urgent treatments can be offered and where late diagnosis is likely to have the most deleterious effect on outcome and we're looking at survival beyond that first anniversary to see what the longer-term effects of treatment are likely to have been. That's why we study conditional five-year survival. One last methodological point is that when we're comparing cancer survival between countries or jurisdictions, using states, provinces, territories, whatever you will, um, when we're doing this at a population level, we have to take account of the fact that not all cancer <coughs> patients not all cancer patients die of their cancer. Some of them die of other things. And because <coughs> these death rates, background mortality, if you like, differ so widely between countries and over time that we compensate for this by using life tables to adjust the survival estimates for other causes of death. In short, relative survival is survival adjusted for other causes of death which vary between countries. So that gives us a clean comparison, the cleanest available comparison of survival in the whole population of cancer patients in each of the different countries. The methodology that we've used is standard. It has nevertheless been overseen by an external reference group, an epidemiology reference group of experts from around the world who, have, who are standing aside from this study 
but have had full access to our methods, our <coughs> protocol and our design and have had input into how we've actually carried out the analyses. The quality of the data that we've looked at is high. Only about 4% of patients <coughs> in the data set had to be excluded because after all the quality controls, their data were insufficiently uh, stable to be analyzed in a study of this kind. So 96% of all the patients' records that we were uh, given for analysis were available for those analyses. And we've analyzed survival for something like three quarters of a million patients with cancers of the colon or colon and rectum or lung or breast. Um, and in the case of ovary, which is rather less common, thank goodness, about 120,000 women were included in those analyses. Broadly speaking, survival is improving for all of these, can all of these cancers in all six countries. Just a minor footnote, Sweden did not provide cancer uh, data for ovarian cancer, so that's the sole exception here. But otherwise, yes, survival is improving for all cancers, all the four cancers we studied in each of the six countries. The survival has improved more or less in parallel in each of the six countries for colorectal cancer, lung cancer, and ovarian cancer. For breast cancer, there has been a narrowing of the international range. What I mean by that is that the difference in survival between the highest and lowest countries for patients diagnosed in the late 90s was larger than the corresponding difference for patients diagnosed in 2005 to 2007. <coughs> Once we've adjusted for age, that difference between the highest and lowest fell from 14% to 8% at five years after diagnosis. In other words, even though survival is improving in all countries for breast cancer, it has improved more or more rapidly in the countries where survival was initially the lowest, namely the UK and Denmark. And that is a pattern um, which has been fairly consistent across all four cancers, and I think it's documented for you or set out in the press release that, broadly speaking, survival in Australia Canada and Sweden has been higher than in the other countries throughout this 13-year period. Survival for Norway has, generally speaking, been intermediate, and survival for Denmark and the three contributing countries of the UK, Wales, England and Northern Ireland, has generally been at the lower end of the spectrum along with Denmark. I think it's important to note, very important to note, that survival has improved more for breast cancer in the UK and Denmark than for other countries. And for colorectal cancer, it is worth pointing out that whilst the overall difference has not narrowed very much between the highest and lowest countries, there has nevertheless been a signal improvement in survival for persons diagnosed age 65 and older, which represent something like half of all of the cases with colorectal cancer. So the improvement is there for all to see in all countries. There are gaps in survival between these countries which remain to be explained and we will tackle some of those um, in later phases of this study and I'll uh, deal with those in questions if the need arise. But I think it's important to note that even quite small differences in survival between countries can represent very large numbers of avoidable deaths. 
And one of those is cited for you in the press release that the differences in survival between England, Wales and Scotland and corresponding countries in Western Europe in the Eurocare studies, which are really not so large, 5, 6, 7% perhaps in survival, these can represent as many as 11,000 premature deaths each year because of the lower five-year survival in England, Wales and Scotland than is the case for the um, comparative Western European countries, the highest levels of survival. That is for all cancers combined, I might add, that figure of 11,400. Um, but breast, colorectal and lung contribute about half of that total of avoidable mortality. In short, the differences in survival that we're looking at may not sound terribly large to you in percentage terms, but they represent substantial numbers of avoidable premature deaths, and that is what motivates the study of survival differences and what explains them. And the goal, the overall goal of the study, I reiterate a point that Mike has already made, is to study these differences in survival in such a way that we understand what causes them and can generate an evidence base for policy to reduce them. I'll stop there. Thanks very much, Michelle. Let's go back to Mike and then to Sarah. Thank you, Richard. Um, so you, you've heard the, the, the headline uh, results uh, that survival has improved uh, for all four cancers in all six countries, with the possible exception of uh, Sweden and Overy, where we don't have the data. Um, that's clearly good news. Um, it is also clearly good news from an England perspective uh, that we have narrowed the gap uh, in terms of the breast cancer survival rates. Um, equally, we have not narrowed the gap effectively for lung cancer, colorectal cancer and ovarian cancer is, is um, hardly changed either. So we've got progress to make on those. And so no doubt there will be questions about why this is and what we've been doing. Um, I think it's just worth reflecting what we have been doing over the time period of this study. Uh, 1995 was when the Kalman Heim report came out. Uh, 2000 was the NHS cancer plan. And both of those, uh, I believe, necessarily focused largely on secondary and tertiary care. We, at that time, desperately needed to build capacity in terms of uh, clinical staff, in terms of radiotherapy machines, uh, uh, the, the, the whole of our secondary and tertiary care system. We needed to establish <coughs> multidisciplinary teams. We needed to centralise complex cancer surgery. Um, and we needed to tackle the waiting times in the secondary sector, all of which we have done. And I would argue that was uh, the right thing to do. Since 2007, and of course that's when this study period ends, um, we have of course had the Cancer Reform Strategy published uh, almost exactly three years ago now, um, where the focus uh, changed very substantially um, and we put a, a heavy emphasis at that point uh, on earlier diagnosis. Jointly with Cancer Research UK, um, the Department of Health set up 
the National Awareness and Early Diagnosis Initiative, where we started by, uh, first of all, trying to bring together all the evidence about early diagnosis, uh, which we did and we published in the British Journal of Cancer uh, supplement this time last year, uh, pulling together all that evidence, but also raising the awareness of this as a problem within the health service. Um, and so this is now a major focus for our uh, activity. Um, take doing three things, really. One is to raise public awareness um, of uh, the signs and symptoms of cancer and to encourage people to come forward sooner. The second is to work with GPs uh, to reduce any delays within primary care. And the third is to give GPs better access to diagnostic tests uh, because up till now that's not been something that, uh, with the exception of chest x-rays, they've, they've had good access to. We want to improve their access to diagnostics so that GPs can, if you like, play it safe uh, by getting tests done if there is a risk of cancer. Um, the, it's well recognised in this country that we need to go further. The government <coughs> recognises that. The coalition <coughs> government has already set out its intentions in this area. Uh, it's announced that uh, there will be a £10.75 million initiative uh, early in the new year to raise uh, awareness of the signs and symptoms of the three most uh, common cancers, breast, colorectal and, and lung. Um, there will also be further announcements in the new cancer strategy, um, and just as a, a trail for that, that is due out in, in, in January. Um, so, and I think very importantly, we'll take account of the findings from the study that you've just heard about. So uh, I can assure people that the findings that are being reported today are being acted on immediately um, and in our absolute aim is to narrow that gap so that over time uh, this country has outcomes that are amongst the best in the world. Hmm. Thanks very much Mike. Now as you know this work was funded by the Department of Health and also Cancer Research UK and Sarah is the Director of Health Information at Cancer Research UK. Thanks very much. It's just um, really a few words to say. Uh, firstly how delighted Cancer Research UK is to be a, a part of the International Cancer Benchmarking Partnership. Um, but also how clearly delighted we are to see survival rates uh, across these cancers improving over the years. Um, but that's not to say that there still isn't work to be done, and we will certainly be working very hard uh, with, with the Department of Health, as Mike has uh, suggested, on the National Awareness and Early Diagnosis Initiative, because it's clear that still uh, issues arise around late stage of diagnosis in this country, and we need to be tackling that. So we'll be urging the government in their, in their refreshed cancer reform strategy to retain a focus on early diagnosis, as well as maintaining a focus on improvements um, to treatment and especially access and equitable access to treatments. Um, there are still variations within this country, as well as important variations between this country and others. Um, North-South divides still exist. We know that there are socioeconomic differences. We also um, see that there are unequitable access to treatments probably that for those over 65 and we think that there is an issue um, for the over 65s in this country which we'd like to see um, the government addressing. Um, what I would also like to emphasise is the clear importance of data and the, and the clear importance of being able to um, have access to survival figures or indeed <coughs> di di diagnosis and death figures in order to be able to cancer, uh, um, calculate survival, in order to be able to make these comparisons and see how we're doing 
against the rest <coughs> of the world. And so we would certainly urge the government uh, not to restrict funding to being able to collect this data. We need to be investing in our cancer registries and making sure that the governance of these registries is, 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 well, um, is well done and uh, that the quality is, is maintained and, and increased where necessary. I think also it's important to say that um, staging data is something that we, we don't uh, have access to enough in this country. It is not collected, it's not mandated, and therefore um, we could be doing a lot more to understand how we're doing if we could get access to staging data across a lot of, a lot of cancers. So still improvements to be made, and of course against a backdrop of um, quite radical change within the NHS, um, Cancer Research UK, obviously, with its focus on improving survival and reducing mortality from cancer, would like to see a maintained focus on cancer um, in very uh, financial constrained times um, and in a time when the NHS is obviously going through quite a bit of change uh, that it's going to have to cope with. So really challenging times ahead, but we're confident that working um, with uh, the coalition government and their focus on outcomes for, for cancer as much as anything else um, that we can uh, continue to make a difference, and this is what we'd certainly like to see and will continue to strive for. Well, many thanks for listening. See you next time.